you're listening. Nope. That's mm. love ya. <laughs> I was just about to be like, don't do the love ya intro. <laughs> I, I know that Marin was the last voice you heard, but... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am Martha Sullivan, and I am not going to tell any of our listeners how long it took me to remember how we start this podcast. Don't worry, it'll be the cold open. Wonderful. (laughs) I am joined today by my uh, usual co-host. I'm Pete Romberg, curriculum developer. And a guest. We have a guest. Huzzah! <laughs> Hi, I'm Marin. Uh, currently uh, enthralled by my very cute pug who is coming over here and making faces at me. Uh, but also a librarian and uh, I think our our uh, local uh, ro- uh, romance genre expert, which is why I was uh, brought in uh, for this particular yes. episode. <laughs> Uh, listeners to our other show might recognize Marin as my co-host on our podcast, Love Ya, where she and I get into adult rom-coms and teen cinema, which made her the perfect choice to guest on this episode where we are finally going to discuss in depth the Richard Linklater Before Trilogy. Now, these movies are frequently referenced on Love Ya as watch-alikes or watch-alternatives. Uh, to the media that we discuss over there. Um, But it didn't quite fit into our oeuvre uh, to discuss on that show, so we brought it over here and roped Pete into our discussion. We are going to get to that discussion right after we finish telling all y'all what is stuck in our heads this week. Uh, This is the piece of media or pop culture that we cannot stop thinking about and that we are dying to talk about. Marin, as our guest, would you like to go first with what is stuck in your head this week? Sure. Um, well, quite literally, stuck in my head has been uh, Olivia Rodrigo's new album. Uh, especially the opening uh, track, which is quite a banger. Um, I've heard good things. Yeah, and I, I was not a big... I, I listened to the big singles from her previous album. I had not... I don't even think I've, I've listened to the whole thing. I am much to Pete Chagrin, a song person and not an album person. Uh, <laughs> you are the modern zeitgeist, not the past. I understand that, but albums are great. Um, But, yeah, as I... Uh, oh, excuse me. Um... I have to take a slightly more, due to road closures, I have to take a slightly more stressful way to work home than usual. So I have been like, okay, I'll, I better listen to music and not podcasts so I can, uh, one, pay more attention on the road, but also to, like, amp myself up a little bit because Milwaukee drivers are insane. Um, and the worst combination of both... Uh, reckless and defensive that you will ever find. And so Fantastic. Having, having Olivia Rodrigo uh, pump me up while I do so uh, has been helpful. Good. I'm sure that she would endorse this use of her album. I mean, you know, she she 
has spoken a lot about getting a driver's license, so I, I yes, think she yes. would understand. <laughs> Even I got that reference. Well done. Absolutely. Uh, Pete, what has stuck in your head this week? So, uh, back in the... Oh, boy. Oh, oh, no. Uh, just finding this uh, date has caused me to shrivel up and die. But back in the halcyon days of 2014... Uh, Adam Scott and Scott Aukerman started a little podcast called You Talking You Two to Me, a encyclopedic compendium of all things U2, uh, where they go, you know, each episode, album by album, they go through uh, U2 albums. When that ended, when they went through all the U2 albums, they started uh, Are You Talking R.E.M. Re.Me, followed by Yui Talking Huey Tui Me about Huey Lewis and the News, uh, stained Glass about the band Stained. Are You Talking RHCP Remi, a two-episode uh, digest on the Red Hot Chili Peppers, where halfway through the second episode, they realized they'd rather be doing You Talking Talking Heads to My Talking Head, a Talking Heads podcast. Uh, and after a rather long hiatus, they have just dropped their newest, the first episode of their newest series, You Springin' Springsteen on My Bean. An encyclopedic, uh, encyclopedic compendium of all things Springsteen. Uh, I love the boss. I'm very excited that these two guys are going to be talking and doing very deep dives on Springsteen episodes. Um, and we were talking off air about you just getting into the podcast Blank Check and how you don't like the tangents and the deep dives and the nonsense. Uh, well, let me just say that the You Talking You Two to Me series of podcasts is two hours long and you can skip the first entire hour because it's just bits and tangents and nonsense. And I like Adam Scott and Scott Ackerman, but sometimes I just want them to talk about the music I want to hear them talk about and not do a bunch of random bits. Um, now, did not we recently learn that Bruce Springsteen kind of sucks as a human being? I don't think so. And if that's true, I'm going to just purge that from my memory banks and ignore it entirely. In what way? How so? Well, let me see if I'm telling tales out of school. Because I don't want to put aspersions on him if it is not true. This is great podcasting. <laughs> I mean, I can cut all this out. Uh, Chris Christie says he and Bruce Springsteen are on better terms, so I guess that's a mark against Springsteen. Uh, but also, like, as much as it pains me to say it, Chris Christie these days is, like, one of the few not insane members of the Republican Party. A very low bar to clear. I was going to say, at this point, if you asso if you continue to associate with the Republican Party... Yeah, it's... Christie's the only one out there being like, I want to take down Trump. Trump is bad. And I'm like, you know what? I agree. Trump is bad. Chris Christie, a also bad, but not as bad person. Okay, I don't remember. I thought I heard I thought I heard something. I don't know. Maybe it's just that we're hearing that lots of people suck. Um. Sure. I think we had an entire episode on what to do with divorcing the artist from the art uh, that we enjoy. But also looking at his wiki page, I'm not seeing any tabs for, you know, controversy, controversy. Yeah, or, or anything. Called controversy. Okay. Clip out as much of this as you would like. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're canceling you for trying to cancel the boss. 
Meh. Uh, well, Martha, what is stuck? Unless, unless either of you had anything to say about <laughs> uh, long-form podcasts, wild tangents, or, uh, you know, music. No? Well, Great. so I've been... So I've been thinking about this a lot. And a lot of the things that I sort of immediately thought of, I'm actually going to save for my best of the year breakdown. Interesting. Because I had like a bunch of things that I wanted to talk about. And I was like, well, I should only pick one. But then it was like, ooh, but maybe because I think that some of the some of the stuff I've been thinking about is going to end up on the best of the year list. So what I have settled on, instead of telling you guys what is stuck in my head this week, I'm going to tell you the project that has been kind of stuck in my head that I've been mm. working on. Mm. And in order to do that, I pose to both of you this question. What is the best movie ever made? Ooh. I don't think that's an answerable question because I think it is a subjective enough well, right. That's the point. Yeah, it's like, a subjective enough question. Like, I don't think. Right. Yeah. My so so here is where here is where this is coming from. I think there are an infinite number of perfect movies in the world. Like, but I also uh, in, think infinite seems high. There are a vast number. <laughs> we'll put it that way. There are a lot of movies that are perfect. There also, yeah. I think there's there's the tier of these are movies that are consensus enjoyed perfect films, and then I think there there's a class two of movies that everyone has on their own. That is, I love this movie. I think it's a perfect film, but it could be a cilantro movie. Like some well, people but- might not enjoy it. My hypothesis is that everybody has the movie that they consider to be the best movie ever made. And the word best means something different to everybody. And I think that that's beautiful. I think it is fascinating to hear what people pick as their movie because it's like it's a little bit like you're telling me something about you and what you value so it's there's no wrong answer and there's no one answer. Well, Mark, okay, my wh- question to you then is what yes. here are you seeing as the difference between the question, what is the best movie ever made, and what is your favorite movie? I was movie? just thinking about what, what are you... That is... No, no. That is for you to define. If the definition of best for you is your favorite movie, that is a valid answer to that question. Because hmm. I would say... I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I guess I would look at those questions differently. I I don't think I would define best and favorite sites synonymously. And that is, and that is a, that is a distinction that you get to make. I am in a position where my favorite movie is also the movie that I consider to be the best movie ever made, but not everybody is, and that's fine. Yes. Yeah, great. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's in the contention, right? Like, I would put maybe spirited away above it but like now we're just haggling over miyazaki's so so what i so i've been making a list on letterbox and it currently has to do, do, do i currently have 24 movies from people who have answered this question 
Oh. And only two of only two of those were repeat answers. Oh, interesting. What are the repeats? Alien and Moonstruck. Yeah. Moonstruck. Huh. Interesting. I mean, I love that movie. I think that movie's perfect, but that is that is really interesting. You're like my it's a perfect film, sister. but it's not the best film ever made. Yeah. yeah. I do. I mean, I love that movie. Don't get me wrong. Oh, sorry, I'm wrong. And also the Blues Brothers. Oh. I mean, your sample size is very Chicago-oriented, uh, so that makes sense. <laughs> uh, An alien so yes. makes sense. Uh... So yes, I ask the two of you now, mm. what is the best movie ever made? Well, okay, if I am just going with, like, what movie elicits the strongest emotional reaction in me. Um, Which is absolutely valid criteria. Yeah. Uh, mine always ends up being It's a Wonderful Life. I think I get through approximately six minutes of that movie without crying. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, when you and Mark and Emily and I watched it and, like, you and Emily were, like, sobbing within five minutes. Yeah, that was very good. <laughs> uh, and i so it was not the movie so obviously the cliche is that like it's the movie you watch every year at christmas but that was not true for me growing up my my family's movie was always love actually so i did not really start watching it frequently until i was an adult um so i i talked my parents into watching it this christmas and they both were like oh, we did not remember this movie being so good they were i mean i think they were both getting kind of misty-eyed Mm-hmm. All right, Pete, your turn. I don't know. Uh, and here's why. I think that for a best movie ever made, it needs to be... And, like, the, these are my criteria. It's, like, I think... Not to... Not, not to negatively, you know, weight animated films but i think that if we're talking about the best films ever made we need it to be live action um because like the why ba uh basically because of the medium it's doing a lot more with animation you actually can control every single aspect of it whereas in a live action you have a lot of human elements slipping in and i'm gonna weight that a little more heavily um which, which again is not too like minimize or negate animation i'm just i was like, gonna say i i, I, no, I am that answer but it's well i'm like i'm you're not allowed your opinion <laughs> I, I i like i in no way want to minimize animation because i do think that mononoke and spirited away are like among the best movies ever made um but i think that if i'm coming up with the one single best movie ever made it has to be it has to be live action um i think it has to be a drama or not a comedy. Um, Marin is giving me a look. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, Martha you're giving me a look too. Giving you a yeah. look. Um, and I think it needs to be a like a a masterpiece of craft, right? Like it it can't be a small film. It has to be. You know, like, because, like, what it, like, film... It can't be a, like, 12 Angry Men where they're in one room exactly, all the time. Exactly, exactly. Which, like, it, which is a great film, right? Uh, but, like... We should probably watch that. I haven't watched it in a long time. What, like, what is a movie? A movie is a, uh, you know, m m much like a boat, it is a bunch of people 
all working together in the same direction. And I think for that, you need it to be working on all levels. It needs to be, you know, the music needs to be there, the, you know, the the acting, the lighting, the set design, the props, what special effects, whatever else might be going on in it, the direction, the visual look. Um, and uh, because all of that is like, that all needs to be firing on all cylinders for it to be the best film ever made because that means that each like department, each part of the film is working successfully. Like the script needs to be great, etc. Um, which is why I'm having a really hard time coming up with this. Uh, can I punt? Can I keep thinking on this? I was going to say, we'll circle back. Yeah. We'll circle back. Because I, I definitely don't have something on the top of my head because, like, everything that comes to mind, I'm like, well, no, that's, like, you know, that's got issues here, that's got issues there. Or, like, that's trite, and I actually don't believe that's, like, the best one I've made. Like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, great film. Not the best film ever made, even though it ticks a lot of the boxes that I just, like, described. There's also an ineffable quality to the best film ever made. It also, yeah. it also is on the list. Lawrence of Arabia? Yeah, right. It, yes. as, as it probably should be. Like, Empire Strikes Back would probably be my, like, when you start blending in my personal vibes, I'm like, I don't know, Jurassic Park and Empire Strikes Back are in the conversation, but also I, I don't think I could put them as the best film ever made. Maybe Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, but I, I still want to think on this. Um, and I'm also, I'm also right now doing my best to emulate the conversation that we'll be talking about for the rest of this podcast <laughs> of, you well, know. Well, here, I'll jump in. Okay, we want to we wanna, uh, Jesse and Celine this up? All right, bud, here we go. Um, so, okay, I'll push you, you back. You don't believe in reincarnation? <laughs> okay, so I'll push back. I feel like you are placing a lot of, like, very Western standard critical narratives on, like, what best means. I mean, I think that, like, there yes. is such a... There is such an overemphasis on, like, subtlety and drama and what we value critically. And I think that it is totally okay to say that, like, Jurassic Park or um, Return of the Jedi are Marvel's... Okay, sorry, Empire. (laughs) Excuse me. Uh, are like marvels of sin, you know, are marvels of cinema, even though they're both like kind of genre films. Like, don't feed into, don't feed into the narrative. Like, oh my god, it's not. It's not just because they're genre films, though. But I think it's okay to say that, like, a genre film, like, can achieve excellence. Oh yeah, yeah. Like, no, no doubt. This. This podcast is pro-genre films. Is it the best movie ever made? That I don't know. And for both for both Empire and Jurassic Park, I less so Jurassic Park. I'm like, these elements don't quite work. Like, you know, we're spending too much time on Dagobah or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, there we go. So, yes. Well, we, we will circle back, Peter. So yeah, I'm, I'm also right now uh, scrolling scrolling through the Sight and Sound uh, 100. Oh, <laughs> uh, like, yes. This is the a good Sight movie. and Sound 100 that rates some no, obscure, no. like, yeah, what is John, it? Is it John Dielman, right. or and, Belgian movie? 
it's that French. nobody it's had an important, ever wrote. It's an important French film by an important female director, Jean Dielman, number one. But you know what? I don't think that's a number one because I don't think it's a masterpiece in many of the criteria that it I was saying. It was like basically a forgotten film until like two years ago with yeah. like a bunch of critics like launched a basically write-in campaign. Yeah. Like... Why aren't you supporting it's female like, directors, Marin? It's like no cultural <laughs> impact. Also, like, I don't know. I think that, again, I think French New Wave cinema is totally steeped in all of those things that we overvalue critically. And, like, my red-hot take is that, like, oh, my God. I'm just going to say... Sorry, I'm Martha. I'm just going to say that if I am... Um, if I am made to pick a best movie ever made that has to be live action, my answer is going to be The Matrix. So. Oh, that's that's a great one. And also, that's uh-huh. working on all the things I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like, every part of that movie has to work, and every part does. Except it's not a drama, so it's automatically disqualified eh. from what you are talking about. No, I mean, yeah. like, like, drama, dr- basically by drama, I meant not comedy. Uh, ja- oh, my God. Yeah. Um, Groundhog Day begs to differ with that point. Groundhog's Day, Groundhog Day is a great film. I don't think it's in, I don't even think it's in my top 25 of all time. Really? I mean, Shocking. I, I love that movie and it's a great film, but I think I'm going to come up with 25 movies before I get to that one. Wow. Okay. I think I'm going to come well, up with other, take... I think I'm going to come up with other comedies before I get to that one. I think I'm going to well, put my cousin Vinny take... over that. Oh. Oh, that, wow. Now that's a perfect film. <laughs> that's actually that's uh-huh. interesting. Uh-huh. That's a perfect film. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, no, I just oh my god, I I think that okay. Sorry, one last point about this. three hour sorry. episode. Let's go. <laughs> this, okay, apparently I had laundry, so here we are. Pete dared me to do a like uh, a little bit of iced coffee with a shot of JMO in it before we started this because I had a long day. But all right, apparently all I need was long drink. I didn't hear uh, you. I jokingly, not joking, said you should do it to make a good app and look at us now. <laughs> uh, but okay, going back. Sorry, one more point about the stupid sight and sound thing is like that movie left no cultural impact. And I don't think you could say something is the best movie ever made if it made no cultural impact. It has to have a legacy. It has to have like a place in culture and it has to mean something to a lot of people. That's fair. That's fair. I will put that as part I of mean, my criteria. Ran might be on I this guess, list. I guess the only thing that I would push back against that is if people making movies, like if it if it has impacted people making movies and like these filmmakers are drawing on it as part of their like influences, that is not something that I necessarily would recognize, but I do think that that counts as cultural influence. Sure. Uh, I don't think John Dielman had a lot of that for like 20 years or more, it. like years. i yeah. i've never seen it and i i would not be i guess i i saw that and i went huh, guess guess i should watch more foreign film <laughs> um, yeah i don't know i also think that the sight and sound list is a weird barometer for i mean like, i'm I'm scrolling through it not for its top 10, just to be like, what are some movies? Uh, because when, when you ask me a question like, what's your favorite film or what's the best film? My mind goes entirely <laughs> blank. I'm like, I've never <laughs> seen a movie before. <laughs> I've never seen a movie. <laughs> so I'm, 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 I'm at Titan Sound mostly to be like, what are movies? What is a film? Yeah. 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 All right, guys, we're going to take a quick recess. And when we come back, we are going to dig deep 
into the Richard Linklater before trilogy. We'll be right back. All right, we are back. So today we're doing a deep dive on the Before Trilogy, directed by Richard Linklater. Uh, these movies are comprised of Before Sunrise from 1995, Before Sunset from 2004, and Before Midnight from 2013. Uh, they star Ethan Hawke as Jesse and Celine as Julie Delpy. Or D Julie Delpy as Celine. <laughs> I was going to say, scratch that, reverse it. Scratch that, reverse it. Uh, and they track the relationship that develops between uh, these two people from when they meet uh, first on the train to Venice when they are... Vienna. Uh, yeah. Vienna. Ha ha ha. Post... How old are they in that? Like 21? 22? 23? Yeah, he had just finished college, and I think she's going back for her last semester or something. And then Before Sunset, which uh, was released nine years later and takes place nine years later. Uh, and then Ditto for Before Midnight, which takes place nine years after that and was released nine years after that. This is Linklater so, doing Boyhood before he was doing Boyhood. And then while he was doing Boyhood. Exactly. Uh, the specifics of the plot. So uh, Jesse and Celine meet on a train uh, to Vienna and uh, Jesse... They strike up a conversation on the train, and Jesse persuades Celine to uh, spend the day with him before he has to take uh, his plane back home. They make a, an arrangement to meet at that train station in six months, and that's the end of that movie. Uh, before Sunset takes place nine years later, um, and where... Jesse is on book tour in Paris. Yes. Mm -hmm. And is uh, talking about uh, the book that he wrote, which is sort of a lightly fictionalized uh, account of his adventures in Vienna. Uh, Celine is at the bookstore where he's giving the talk. And so they spend a few hours together in Paris again before uh, Jesse has to get on a uh, plane to go home. And then nine years after that, we are in Greece. Jesse and Celine are 42, 41. Ish. They are now married. They uh, have twin I think girls. actually not married. Yeah, they are. They are oh, partners. No, yeah, they are partners. They have twin girls. They are not married, um, which is an interesting detail that I would like to talk about. Um, but they are sort of hashing out the realities of their relationship. Uh, it is a widely critically acclaimed trilogy of movies. It is a fascinating artistic endeavor. Um, this was the first time that I had seen Before Midnight. So I had seen the first two before, but I'd never seen Before Midnight before. Uh, and I am just curious. I, I kind of want to start with initial impressions before we dig into specifics. That's that's the fourth How movie, did... before we dig into specifics. <laughs> before we dig into specifics. <laughs> Um, so we are all three fairly strongly opinionated people. Uh, and I am curious to hear from you guys what you thought of the impression of the whole trilogy. 
Uh, boy, are they exhausting people. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're exhausting. Um, I did uh, have that thought that, like, if I knew these two people in real life, I would have thrown them both out a window. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think they're both exhausting people. I think also, and I think I've talked with you both about this, I find parts of the Gen X, like, pervasive ennui, we can't be seen to be caring about something, and we must be intellectualizing and cooler than other people at all times unbearable. Um, so I think that the surface level, a lot of the surface, like after about like 20 minutes of the surface level conversations they get into, I just like shrug my shoulders and I'm like, oh my God. Because the first one especially is like a Gen X-er text. It is the most Gen X film ever created. <laughs> yeah. And I I just want to coming from the and I had not rewatched this these movies. I think probably since I mean, well since college, so a few years after the second one came out. And I must have seen a couple scenes of Before Midnight cuz there were parts I definitely remembered, but I don't think I'd seen it the whole way through. Um but yeah, coming coming back from the perspective of oh god. I am now 34. All right, letting that sink in. Just the math there. Um, I'm old enough now where I have to do the math to remember how old I am. That's great. Um, coming from the perspective of 34, I just, like, wanted to, like, put my, like, hands on these two babies' shoulders and when they're 22 and be like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> just calm down. Stop trying to be cooler than everyone else. You will be fine. So I I had never seen any of these movies. Um, Fascinating. My, I although so watching watching before sunrise, there were many scenes where I'm like, I have definitely seen this scene, or like I know this conversation. But realistically, the only exposure I had had to Selena and Jesse up to this point was uh, Waking Life, uh, Richard Linklater's rotoscoped. Um, dorm room <laughs> conversation film about uh, um, lucid dreams, basically, uh, which has a very unfortunate um, Alex Jones cameo back when Alex Jones was sort of, just sort of like a weirdo crank in Austin and not, you know, Alex Jones. Um, but like there's a scene with Celine and Jesse after Before Sunrise, but before Before Sunset, uh, where they're just lying in bed having, you know, more philosophical talks about dreams and stuff, because that's what Waking Life is as a movie. Um, and so I totally... Waking Life has so many parallels to Before Sunset, especially, because it is just dorm room philosophizing and conversations between usually two, but sometimes more people. Um, you mean Before Sunrise? I do. I do mean Before Sunrise. Um, and... So I don't know if I'd actually seen scenes from it or if it just resonated because it's more Linklaterian dialogue along these lines. And, you know, I, I was just already on that wavelength because of Waking Life. Um, I agree with, uh, I think, both of you that they are the most exhausting people in the world, but in a way that is very relatable. Although, interestingly, I mean, like, relatable in the sense of, like, you're real people. Um, although Martin and I were both talking that it's, it's very interesting that before sunset 
is the one that is closest to us in age. But they... Oh, honey, I hate to break it. No, before sunset. They're... Oh, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. You're right. Okay, they're 32. That's right. Sorry, right. I did the math there. Yeah, right great. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they haven't, like, figured their lives out yet in a way. Whereas, you know, both, both the two of us and our friend group, um, being a lot of type A people, figured itself out. Like, we... I almost felt like the conversations in Before Midnight were more like the conversations that us and our friends would be having. Not the fights necessarily, but like that caliber of conversation. Partly because it's about someone who's been in a long-term conversation or long-term relationship. Um, Marn and I have been in a relationship for longer than Jesse and Celine were uh, in Before Midnight and oh, dissolving into dust. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like, it, it, it is interesting that it's like fast. I, I loved coming in to them at each nine year interval and I loved spending time with them. I, I, I think I enjoyed all three movies. We'll get into before midnight, uh, which I think I appreciated more than enjoyed and had my most nits to pick with, but also you and like, I, I, I would like to, I would like to delve into that. Cause I think you and I had very different, Tate yeah, and Marin is even less impressed with it than I was, so we're going to have a nice wide range of discussion on it. But, like, I, I think it's a great and fascinating film. Um, but all three mo- movies, I really, really appreciate what's happening. I like spending time with these people, even though they're mo- the most exhausting people in the world. Uh, and I'm really glad that I watched all three of these now. And I get to talk about it. Huzzah. Also, I see way too much of myself in Jesse in the sense of just, like, nonsense philosophizing and talking too much with my hands. And being like, so, you know, like, you know, like, reincarnation. But there are more people now alive than have ever been alive in the history of the world. So where do these new souls come from? I'm like, yes, yes, we're asking the big questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I really found, so I watched all three in very close proximity which Same. I think is the way to do it. Like, I cannot imagine watching these... Like, nine years apart. I don't know. Yeah, and part of that is because the first two movies are 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 movies about people who are in... Well, this... Uh, I'm trying to think of how to how to talk about this. It's like, we have two movies that are about two people who are in stasis... And in a lot of ways, afraid of or not wanting to move forward. And then the third movie is all about the pain of having to, of being forced to do so. Interesting. Um, I I don't know if I agree with that analysis at all, but continue. I I love this. Yeah. So the, the way that I kind of read them is like you have you have the first two movie you have the first movie which is about two young people who are very much inside the sort of unreality of being a college student. Like, yeah, Jesse has just graduated, but I think you stay in that space for a while. Like, <laughs> yeah, like he's he's 22. He has, it does, like, yeah, he is, yeah, he's graduated. He's on his own. But in a lot of ways, he is not really an adult yet. Um, and so he and Celine meet and it's, you know, they're, they're feeling as strongly as you feel when you are between the ages of 15 to 24, like when you're 22. Yeah, that is a very strong. So 
when we meet them again 10 years later, like they're both adults, but they're still both so trapped in that one space where they met each other when their brain chemistry was like in exactly the right spot. So like Jesse has married and had a kid, but is still in like, he has an unhappy marriage. He uh, is still, I think romanticizing that moment. And Celine is just like Celine is mired in that moment in a way like she's not married, which you don't have to be by 31 to be a complete person. But like, I think in their own ways, they are both very much stuck in that space. I mean, Jesse wrote a whole dang book about that one night. They are both clearly, like, that and night was, was a in, defining seminal moment. And he was, he was, he has been ready his entire life. Like, he has been ready this entire time to blow everything up to be with Celine again. Like, he's, he's that gonna is miss what, that plane. Yeah, like, that that is what that told me. And then by the time you get to so you have two people who have for about ten years not moved out of this space they've been in. And then in the third movie, you have two people who don't want to deal with how much work change takes. Like I think that they both have they both have pain, they both have resentment, they both have a lot of feelings that they have never really dealt with because doing so means that they would have to move out of that space that they were in like this one beautiful, perfect space. And I thought that that was a really fascinating story to tell. And I also think that it only works if you look at these three movies as three parts of one whole story. I don't think they work nearly as well individually as they do as three acts of one play. Uh, this is really interesting. All three of us had wildly different takeaways from the third movie. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah, for me, the third was sort of a Rosetta Stone for the whole thing. Um, yeah, by, by the time I got to the third movie, I, I was feeling like the whole was greater than each part individually. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm kind of in the same wheelhouse you're in, but I I conceptualized it a little differently. Where I mean, I think you're right that what we're seeing is a full arc of a relationship. Um, and I mean, I think you know we're seeing the arc from fantasy to the everyday reality of being in partnership um i i think that um (laughs) also not to cut you off any sounds you hear in the background our dog has brought his noisiest chew toy in here (laughs) and is just having a great time chomping away and it is definitely getting picked up in the background so uh yeah yeah ozzy gets to be on the podcast too yeah sorry sorry you all can't see our very cute pug He's a cute boy um, and a very loud chewer. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that part of it, I, I don't, I think also though it's, it's supposed to mirror the, the stages that you go through your, in your life in terms of, 
you know, when you're 22, you feel like the possibilities are endless and you feel like you are about to go out into the world and find this like one true path that you're going to be on. And then I think for a lot of folks, when you're 32, you the the path hasn't the 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 expectation of the path that you thought you were supposed to be on or thought was going to happen or thought, you know, by that point, life has thrown you a few curveballs. And and I think that there are a lot of people who are dealing with that expectation versus reality of what they feel like they're supposed to be or do in their early 30s versus where they are. And uh, ju- just to pause you there, because what you're saying makes me think of something where it's interesting in the second one that Jesse has... Um, basically, well, actually, both of them. They both have professional success for 32, yes. but personal sort of not success. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. And, um, yeah, and then I think, you know, the last one is all about accepting where the reality has taken you and, and letting go of that fantasy. And... I think that, yeah, I think it's it's on one hand, it's about, it happens to be about a romantic relationship, but I, I think that the, the arc um, is really about that very human experience that we all go through. And I think that, too, I think that, like, kind of watching their journey, you, um, yeah, and kind of they, they're matching those disappointments that they've had versus, you know, if you kind of put the Celine and Jesse on their train side by side with the Celine and Jesse in Greece, I I think that a lot of what they're feeling is they, they thought that this perfect relationship that they experienced for this moment would, would somehow fix them or would add this layer of meaning to their life. And are in some ways letting perfect be the enemy of good um, and are holding, you know, clutching on to those expectations up against the reality. And so I think what the movie ultimately confronts, and I, I don't know that it, I feel like kind of the end of the movie, I don't know, for me I feel like the end of, I feel like Before Midnight spent so much time on that dinner party um, and I understood thematically what they were trying to do, but I just found it a big snooze fest. Um, and then I think they rush at the end, kind of that moment where we, I think there's like a teeny tiny moment at the very end where we start to see them reconcile that. And I, I wish they had taken that further. Cause I, on I on think, the cafe pier? Yeah, because I, I think that if it had gone to that place, I, I would have found it much more meaningful. I think it, I think it was kind of a cop-out of, we're really trying to tell this sad story about this disintegrating relationship, but we're going to throw you a bone at the end to be like, oh, oh. it might be okay. So I, yeah, See, I this didn't... Is, this is so interesting to me because I did... I was left with the feeling that they had had this fight before. No, I had the I feeling not... that they had the first couple parts of the fight before, but not the I don't love you part of the fight. Um, that felt like a new wrinkle to a fight that they had had before. Well, and I think him thinking about moving to Chicago was entirely new. 
I don't think that was yeah. a conversation they had yeah, ever but had like, before. Like, was he thinking about moving to Chicago? That felt like something she kept bringing up, and he, like, didn't. No, he did. Uh, did he, He though? brought up entertaining the idea. Sure. And she, like, well, I, I felt... I, I felt like she like they they'd had the fight before, and my read was that she. I don't. I don't think they had that fight before. I think no, 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 sorry, not not the Chicago awesome. fight, but the um the other parts of it. Celine says that he does this every time that Henry has to go back to his mom. She's <laughs> like, well, I think he panics about like he gets moody. Yeah, he gets moody and he gets angry at her because he sees her as what prevents him from spending more time with Henry. But I don't think he's ever brought up moving to Chicago. That that last fight, I, it, it's so interesting. Like we we finished the movie, and Martin and I both, like, had critiques with the last, like, with the third act, but they were totally different critiques, and we had entirely different interpretations of it. Where, you know, you you were just saying, Martin, that like it's it's about people who have to sort of grow up and learn how to like live in their relationship in a way and like put the fairy tales behind them, whereas. I read the fight as, like, Jesse kind of had already done that, or at least was, like, maybe living in his own different fairy tale world, but it wasn't about what love was. Um, whereas Celine was still holding on to sort of, like, a fairy tale idea of of what love is, and that, like, the last sort of conversation at the pier was her sort of realizing, like, coming to that realization and deciding to... You know, not necessarily put the work in because obviously they've both been putting the work in for nine years, but like to sort of decide to re, you know, re-enter the relationship with a slightly different perspective. Um, yeah, like because like I... there's the there, like the, the whole like I don't love you line in that fight could be in my mind could be read one of three ways. One, they've had that fight already. I I that's not the re- line. Like I don't think that was the move that felt like a new wrinkle to a fight they'd already been having two she's just coming to that realization sort of in the moment as they're fighting or three she's sort of been thinking that for a while and this is sort of like the nuclear option that she's gonna drop to like win slash end this argument and i kind of took it as the third option whereas Marin, i think you sort of took it as the second of like she's sort of coming to this realization in the moment whereas i was sort of like no she's been noodling on this for a mm. while See, and I think, yeah, I would say that everything before she leaves the second time. Which is right after the I Don't Love You line. Yeah, I I would say most of the stuff before that, I think, followed the arc of maybe maybe they had had individual conversations around certain issues. But I do think it was an airing of the grievances, like Seinfeld style. I think it was a... Okay, we're going to talk about... Because I got You the, slept with so-and-so, you gave blowjob to so-and-so. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I, I got the sense that this was a lot of resentments that had been building, bubbling up. I think maybe they had talked through some things, but maybe they hadn't been clear about how angry certain things had made them. I, I definitely got a sense that some things had been bottled up, but maybe some of those things had been discussed. But I think when she comes back the second time and she just, like, drops bombs on him and is just, like blowing it all up i think that was entirely new i think that was her being like and we're done here um even so i (laughs) i am willing i am willing to to go with you guys on that i don't think i i think that is an argument and it is an argument that may be taken to a level that it has not been before 
mm-hmm. I think it's an argument between two people who know exactly what to say to hurt the other one the most. Yeah, yeah. but that yeah. that doesn't mean they've had those fights I, before. I mean, you can build no, those but things it does, up. For sure, for sure. But it does mean that my interpretation of the I don't love you anymore line is actually option four, Pete. I mm. don't think she means it. I just think she knows that it will hurt him. I think mm. that, I think she knows that that's the thing that she can say to Jesse that will hurt him the most. Like, it's the nuclear option to win the fight or to end the fight. Even if it's not true, yes. it's, it's still the, but like, I don't, I boom. Don't... Yeah. Yes. Or option five, yeah. she thinks she means it, but doesn't actually, and she's just lashing out. Eh, that's yeah, basically maybe... option four with a, with a twist. Yeah. <laughs> um... But I, mean, yeah, I don't I think, think she's that... deliberately like, I'm going to say this thing I think I don't mean. Which, I Martha, think, you, I think, that I think is your thing. I think it's, I'm going to say this thing I know will hurt you. Yeah. But I think deep down she knows she doesn't mean it. Right. I, I, don't, I don't even know. think deep down she, I think she knows she doesn't mean it, but I think she knows that it will hurt him. And she feels, because she also feels very hurt. Um, I, I can only imagine, I got so mad at Jesse when he was like, do you think when he, when he sets the trap for her, that's like, don't you agree that Henry would benefit from us being a more stable presence in his life? Like, dude, that's a trap. It And I, I go, can, go ahead. Yeah. That point, I cannot imagine that they did not talk about that before he moved to Paris. Like, if they well, didn't, that's wild. I think they talked about it vaguely, but I got the sense at the time that Henry's mom, like, there there was not a conversation to be had. I mean, it wasn't were, even an option. There was also the whole Mishigas about, like, when Celine was pregnant, which was a tough pregnancy, that's when all this was going down. So, like, yeah, they so- weren't really able to, like to have this fully because like Celine was having a tough pregnancy and then a tough birth and then like had to be in Paris to be near her, like her mom and all the rest of it. So it was sort of a like, and, then, and, and, and Henry's mom used that to sort of like yeah, gain total off. custody yeah. and all the rest of it. So yeah. Yeah. I got the sense that they thought the option was on the table that Celine could have these babies and they would move back to New York and Henry would be or, there. Or that they could have joint custody and, like, you know, yeah. there'd that be a little more... Up, that they can do what they did when Henry was very little and have some form of joint custody in New York. Uh, man, as as the movie was ending and I was definitely on Jesse's side, I was thinking to myself, uh, is this annoyingly gendered that I'm definitely on Jesse's side? And then as Martin <laughs> and I were talking and she's like, she's fully on Celine, so I'm like, oh, no. Because there uh, were certain, <laughs> well, I think there certain things that, so what hit me the most that I think would just, you would not understand, like, the, the, the thing that Celine said that just, oh, and not to, like, air our business, I don't think you would mind me saying this, but we have had eerily similar conversations of this idea that, like, what men think is rational and logical and decisions that women make always have to come from a place of emotion or that, like, factoring in emotion or how things make one feel into decision-making is not, like, valuable. Um, Lauren, that was so illogical of you to air our business <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that I felt so hard because we, we have had that, ex- and I wouldn't say argument. I would say we have had that exact conversation. 
Uh, Where, like, and whereas for me, I was on Jesse's side because even earlier in the film, it felt like Celine was. You thought she was itching for. a I fight. I think she was itching for a fight. I think she was itching for a fight even in that initial car ride with the with the twins asleep in the back. Like, it it felt like she was taking everything he was saying ungenerously, and that could be because what? they've had that argument before, and like she sort of knows the deal. But I I, I had I the guess. vibe of like she's itching for a fight. My response to that is I don't think that's inconsistent with how she's been through all of the movies. Uh, it, it Maybe just because what they're talking about is like slightly higher stakes in this one, but it rubbed me in a way that it didn't rub me in the other two movies, where like in the other two movies I'm like, all right, yeah, she's pushing back or whatever, but in, in the third one it's like, what like what are you doing? He's saying a thing and you're taking it in the most ungenerous way possible. Well- um because he's because he's setting a trap for her like the the idea that you could talk about something like where to move your entire family in order to contest custody for your partner's child from a previous marriage the idea that you could talk about that without emotion is false like it's an emotionally driven decision and it should be it yeah. should be right but, but that, when he but that... was like when no nope, I'm not done. I'm, yeah, well, that's your finish. When when Jesse says, can we talk about this, like, logically without emotion, I'm like, you are setting up your partner to fail by phrasing it that way. Well, but the that, key where I think you're coming from is you are like, why is she just shutting down this conversation at I'm, all? I'm coming from by and that like, point. Well, yeah. She's already been picking this, like, she's already been antagonistic up to, like, in my mind, up to that point. Like, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but it doesn't, like, in my mind, she's the one, you know, she's, you can't see the air quotes, she's starting it, right? And that's not a good way to think about a uh, <laughs> an argument or a conversation between partners. But by that point, I'm kind of like, yeah, like, if we're going to do an airing of the grievances, then yeah, let's lay it out here. Um, I don't know. Apparently, on. Okay, anyway, apparently I'm, I'm the referee here because I'm on team. They were both wrong. <laughs> uh, they're, they're both the a-holes. Yeah, they're both the a-holes. Like, uh, what is the uh, Reddit term? Uh, E-S-H, everyone sucks. Uh, everyone sucks here. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that... I do, I do agree everyone sucks here. Like, yeah, because yeah. I, I do think that, like, yeah, Celine should have been open to a conversation but I also think Jesse should have respected that that conversation can be opened and shut very quickly. And that is a two yeses decision to move your family halfway around the world. Um, well, I guess part of it comes down to like Martha's take of like, is this a conversation that they've had a dozen times before? Again, or is this one that is like so. new? I think this is taking into a new place. I think that he, I because what she says specifically is that he gets moody and mad at her after Henry leaves. But I, I don't think she has ever said... Like, oh my God, stop moving, talking about moving to Chicago. I think that is a new thing. And I think that they both, in that push and pull, they both are being ungenerous towards each other. And I think that they both, and this is why, this is part of why I do believe that this is long simmering resentments. Because I think that explains why their animal brains get triggered and neither of them can have a productive conversation like an adult to say, okay, we clearly have a disagreement here. Let's be on the same team and work through this together. And they're seeing this as a pitch battle between the two of them. 
Um, so I think that this is coming from their, what is it called? The limbic core, wherever like your lizard brain, lizard brain. There's like the part of the brain where you like keep your fight or flight response. Um, and I, and that's part of why I believe that this is all coming from simmering resentments is that this is emotions. I think you're not wrong that like these emotions have been simmering a long time, Martha, but I think this is, they are all coming out. And I think part of why they're coming out so viciously is they haven't had this conversation before and they have been, this has been simmering under the surface because I think that in the car scene, that feels like very well-tread day-to-day conversation, like not arguments, but like disagreements that are handled in a very normal give and take, like productive way. And I think by the time we get to that end, it's all of those bets are off and it is just two people who are in flight or flight and cannot, well, I guess one who is in fight and one who is in flight and they cannot get any sort of grasp. I think they're both in fight. No, I think she's in, she gets to flight. She she packs up and leaves. No, that's that's her fight response. No, that's a flight response. Uh-uh, no. Nope, I'm right. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that the I to me it makes the most sense that part of why that would come out so hard after because there's that moment there where it seems like okay we yelled at each other we said some mean things all right let's move on here and then it gets triggered again and then it's just done. And I think that part of that is that long simmering resentment. And I think that, um, and that's part of why I think that it's so frustrating to me that this movie spent so much time on this. We're not allowed to swear on here, right? Nope. Clean. Keep it clean. I was about to, okay. Uh, There's a very um, highfalutin philosophical conversation about love at this dinner table with people we have not met nor care about um, and does not take the time to do any of the repair work. Like it wants to have its cake and eat it too in terms of being very cynical about love, being like, "Uh uh-oh, here's the reality of being in a long-term relationship. It gets ugly, folks. But like wanting to sprinkle that crumb of... Uh, maybe a cute joke and a bit about time traveling can work it out. Like, to me, that felt... Yeah. Is it weird that I don't think these movies are cynical about love? Yeah. I think these movies are very cynical about love. Oh, I don't think they're cynical at all. Oh, no. I I think think this is very hard on us. I think they are very incredibly cynical about love because it seems to believe a couple of things. Thing one, that you only can have that type of connection with like one person throughout your life, which I can believe it's rare, but I don't believe that like there is one perfect person I... out there for you. Sorry to break it to you, honey. I love you. Very oh no. Much. <laughs> I love you very much. Um, I and, think it's and... saying that as a general truth though. Hmm. I don't know. And thing two, I think that it says that like, there is no way that like, we can transition a relationship. There is no way to reconcile perfect expectations of a relationship with the fact that, like, a person can drive you crazy when they leave their socks on the floor. Like, 
I think that I think that the yeah, I think at the end this movie's a cop out. I think it wants to you to believe that it is saying that these two people will find a way to be together, but I don't think it actually does. I think that last fight is so vicious that I do not believe that it is showing us that these are two adults who can repair this relationship and show that like even after all these time after all this time together they can value the relationship that they have over this fantasy. I don't think it does. I think that it's showing us that they're still stuck in this fantasy. And I think that's a really cynical take on love. Martha, I got a counter-argument, but we've been talking for a while, so... <laughs> I'm trying to sort through... I'm trying to sort through how I want to say this. Um, part of part of how I feel is that I don't think that this movie is presenting is trying to present any universal truths. I think it is a character study about two very specific people. So I really take anything that it was talking about as like Richard Linklater's view on romance generally. Mm-hmm. It felt to me more like a portrait of two two people with very specific hang-ups and how they orbit each other and like that's Um, that's aided by watching all three movies in quick succession because the first especially the first one but the second one too are so specific to these people i mean but what are characters supposed to be if not universal like they're supposed to be good hang films with some friends that we want to hang out with every nine years (laughs) no i think you are supposed to take universalities away from character studies i think you are supposed to and the different grand... I think no, it's supposed to no. be a way... No, slice of life like, films are not about grand universal truths. They're about the nitty-gritty of this They're about the nitty-gritty that you take away and relate to. Mm, no, disagree. What? Well, no. okay, except that... <laughs> pause. I'm putting, I'm putting both of you on a timeout. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think both of these things can be true. I think that we can we can look at this as a character study of two very specific people, but there also were th- themes and feelings in these movies that I related to very deeply. I just don't express them in the same way because I am not Jesse or Celine, thank God. Um, <laughs> but I I do think like in very broad strokes, like I relate to the idea of being adrift, of not really knowing what I'm doing, of um you know, thinking like there are certainly points in my life, nothing as big as a a person that I wish that I had reconnected with. I'm married and very happily so. Um, but I can relate to the general sense of what would have happened if I'd done X instead of Y. Um, I can certainly relate to the idea of knowing somebody so well that in an, in a given argument, like, whether or not I choose to deploy it, I know what I could say that would hurt somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I don't think that this movie is generally saying there is only one person out there for everybody or that we are sort of doomed to be stuck in uh, the fairy tale romance conceits of our early 20s. <coughs> But I think like any story, there are themes and ideas that resonate with me on an individual level. Maren, what did you think of the first one? Um, I think once they got past the pretentiousness 
I think that there was probably about 20 minutes of there that I just rolled my eyes constantly. So I was like, oh, are you the most 22-year-old Gen Xers that ever 22'd? Oh, my God. Like, you could hang out with the people in Rent right now. Um, to, um, once I got past that, and I mean, I think it wasn't nice, it, it, it pushed past that in ways where they did drop some of the pretensions and they did get honest and vulnerable. And once I got to that level, I was much more on board. Uh, going to Letterboxd, uh, Martha, you and I gave, both gave before Sunrise four stars. Martin, you gave it three and a half stars. Uh, and then Martha, we both gave before Sunset four stars. Marin also gave it four stars. Uh, and then Marin has not rated before midnight on Letterboxd. You gave it five. I gave it four. Uh, so I, I was, I was consistent, I was consistent down the ballpark, four stars for all three films, even though I don't think that they're all like equal, you know, like I, I'm, I'm like, I don't think these films yeah, deserve said... fewer than four stars. <laughs> You said the vibes were off in the fourth one, and I, I disagree. I think Third the vibes one, yeah. are pretty consistent. <laughs> Third one, yeah. Uh. Well, that, that's just because of, of the argument thing that we've been, you know, hashing out for the last 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, like, don't you worry, Martha. This is like a repeat of what happened right after we watched the movie. So welcome to our couch on well, a random Thursday night. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, am, I am glad and fascinated by the fact that we all watched this third movie and we're all roughly of the same age. No, younger, this like, one with our much older. No, no, no. The three of us oh, are all sorry. roughly sorry, of the same age. But also, we have all been in relationships for about as long as Selene and Jesse have been in that third movie. And we all came away from that movie with wildly different takeaways and wildly different opinions on it. Uh, yeah. which, is, which is very interesting. Yeah. Which is also, I think, further evidence for me that I, I don't think Linklater is striving for some kind of universal truth. I do think he has hit on a kind of storytelling that resonates with people in very different ways, depending on what you are bringing to that viewing experience. Well, and I don't know if he's extrapolating universal truth just such a, as much as like what the heart of the story is. I think at its heart, like it's kind of a cynical story. And I think... At its heart, you know, like I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that Richard Linklater, if you sat down and asked him, do you believe in love, would say no. But I think that the things it's saying about love end up being pretty cynical. And I don't agree. <laughs> I, um, I also think that this is what Marriage Story wanted to be, and was bad mm. haven't being. haven't seen haven't seen marriage story so i can't uh i'm interested in it Maren my is boy, am i not interested in that movie <laughs> i was just about to say my I advice have, to you both is don't <laughs> i have i have never walked away from a noma bombach movie feeling like i didn't want those two hours of my life back whereas i like no bombach so i i could give it a whirl um so we we've spent most of this episode talking about the third movie uh, yeah, this year we barely is, talked about the second movie. Which which does make sense, Martha, with your take of, like, this is one big three-act play, and often the most interesting or the most dramatically interesting thing happens in the third act. Um, well, and, and like I also said, the third movie was the one that sort of helped me. Like, I kept, I, I have heard, these movies get 
touted frequently as like amongst some of the best movies ever made. And while I like and appreciate one and two, I kept, I was sort of waiting for that. Like now I get it moment. And three helped me put all of them in context and like, Truly sort of, I think by three, I really appreciated the scope of what Linklater had accomplished. So it's, it's interesting. I, when we, when, when we were like in the moment of watching these and I was reviewing them shortly after watching them and thinking about it, I, you know, watched one and was like, this was great. I love spending time with these wackos. This is the most Gen X thing in the world and they're exhausting people. Uh, but I, I love Linklater's like dorm room philosophizing and, you know, hanging out in Vienna with these guys. And then when we saw the second one, my take was um, it felt slighter than the first and it felt more Celine, like Celine was the driver of the conversation in a bigger way than in the first one. Um, and so like my immediate takeaway was like, it, it felt slighter and less ambitious maybe because it was retreading, you know, structurally sort of retreading old ground. But the more, like, as time has passed, I'm like, I think I like number two more than I like number one. And I then know. and then the third is the one that I think I liked the least but has also stuck with me the most. Um, and it is the one that also breaks a lot of that ground. Like, it's not just the two of them wandering around a gorgeous European city. Like, it has other conversations. We've sort of talked around the dinner table conversation, which I think was an interesting idea that didn't work in the execution. But the idea of having a multi-generational conversation is, is like, sort of a really fascinating, like, structural idea. And, and, and yeah, it's like... I don't, you know, like I said, I don't think I liked it, but I as much as as the the first and second, but but it's it sat with me, <laughs> you know, and that's the mark of a good well, film. I think the part of what's happening here is that this is the type of story that films don't usually get to tell. This is the type of story that TV usually gets to tell. Like I think this is very much treading ground from Bergman scenes from a marriage and oh can you imagine if this was like an eight hour HBO special that was just exhausting well, long and bad liter they literally <laughs> just did that Jessica with scenes Chastain. of a marriage right yeah if this was an eight hour long HBO uh, special and would just, is exhausting long and bad because uh, they didn't know when to cut it you know <laughs> I mean but like because I, I appreciate the the heck out of Before Sunset for being an hour and a half. Yeah, like, I mean they aren't they aren't laggy movies. That is true. Well, the third one was a little longer, but I mean it's not that much less time. Um, but yeah, I I think part of what makes it unique and what we appreciate about it is that it truly is telling a TV arc. Um, and I and with that being said, I think often actually TV shows frequently shy away from the arc of what happens when people are in a long-standing relationship and that the only stories TV knows, the only long-form stories that we get to hear about romantic relationships are will they, won't they, and relationship in crisis, which, well, I guess the third movie ended up being. But this, this is unfortunately a really good segue to a question I wanted to ask, yeah. but I want to give Martha uh, the chance to respond or weigh in. All I want to say is, would it shock the two of you to know that number two is generally considered to be the, uh, like, number two is the one that most frequently gets included in, like, best of lists? That doesn't surprise me. Um, if, you, if you had told me that right after I finished watching it, I would be surprised. But right now, I would not be surprised. Well, good, because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I mean, I would say I probably enjoyed that one the most. Like, it has a great ending. What an absolutely great ending. Yeah. Um, so I my... will say my favorite line. I think my favorite line in the whole trilogy is when Jesse in number three says, "Like I blew my whole life apart because of the way that you sing." It was such a. <laughs> It that was the line that told me the most about everyone involved. Yeah, I as as much as I keep re returning to the reincarnation bits, which I like that in at least the first two and maybe in the third they like bring it back as a recurring bit. Uh, Baby, you're gonna miss that plane is a phenomenal, phenomenal line read and just scene in general. Um, so the the segue I was gonna uh, use was we're kind of doing this episode because this series doesn't work for Love Ya, uh, structurally, because they're not streaming and, and all the rest of it. But th- we're doing it because in, like, every single Love Ya episode, the two of you inevitably say, ah, it's like a before sunrise uh, kind of situation. Yeah. Um, so put on your Love Ya hats and, mm-hmm. like, do you, like, not necessarily, like, rom-com rehab these, but, like, now that you both have seen all three of these, are there is there anything you'd want to talk about in terms of them as like ur texts or important foundational or you know referential texts for streaming teen or adult rom-coms? Well, I mean, literally Netflix is putting out a movie called Love at First Sight in the next couple of weeks that is about two people who have a plane ride. A long plane ride together. Oh, so it's a real before sunrise and, situation. Uh, and then uh, l- lose each other's contact information. And uh, she has to track him down. So, like, I think that, like, maybe... So it'd be, like, the annoying, like, 1.5 movie of, like, Jesse trying to find... Like, yeah, Selena exactly. Trying to find. Well, I think both the 1 and 1.5 movie, because we'll see the connection, but then also a little bit of the aftermath. Um... Yeah, so I mean, I think that this idea of one crazy night, and I don't, I also don't think it's new from before sunrise. I mean, bringing up baby did it in nineteen thirty whatever. Like it's the the trope of one crazy night is not a new trope, um, but I do think that it did bring it um, into the modern era, and I think it paired it with young adults in a specific way. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that, I mean, Carly Fortune, whose book um, Every Summer After was one of the best books I read last year, her latest book, Meet Me at the Lake, is basically before sunset. Like it's, well, the two of them integrated. It's the one wild and crazy night and then the aftermath of them reconnecting 10 years later. So I, I think that this potent idea of can one night change your life and can you have a connection so strong and so immediate that it like restructure well as you said martha i blew up my life because of the way you sing like that it, it blows up your life um i mean i think that that's a potent idea and i think that there's a reason we keep returning to it yeah i mean i don't think so after after the many conversations that Marn and i have had about this i don't think you can call these movies romances but they are definitely romantic in nature. Um, and I I don't know. There's something really there's something really daring about 
making a movie that is kind of about the idea of having one crazy night that can change your life and doing sort of a, but here are the realities of that kind of spin on it. Talk about um, the third movie I here. I think that works. No, I'm talking about the whole thing. Like the first movie, I think you have two people who are like in inside of they're they're living inside of the idea that this day is like the most important day of their lives. Right. Um, and then you get to see the fallout from that. <laughs> the, the fact that has uh, <laughs> like destroyed both of them in a way, or like not, not destroyed, has, but like but it, also... irreparably changed both of them. Yes. And I, I do think that I ultimately see the movies as more optimistic than either of you guys. No, I, I view um, them as very optimistic. Sorry, not whatever. <laughs> do you do you think that they stay together? Oh yeah. At yeah. the end of three? Yeah. Absolutely not. They're <laughs> divorced within five years. <laughs> no, I think they're going to be having that same fight in their retirement home. <laughs> uh, it, it is interesting, though, that we um, we have, uh, what, two, three? I mean, it was during COVID that we passed the nine-year mark Yeah. Uh, for the, the next one, which is, you know, and I none of them have said necessarily that it's like... No, I think they've all said very explicitly it's Like, done. it's a trilogy, there's yeah, no more. Yeah, this but, is it. We've told the story we want to tell. Yeah. I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd watch them again in 9, 18, 27 years, you know, whatever. No, 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 The repeat <laughs> that we need here, keep all of that energy directed for 28 years later. Come on. Oh, yeah, I would definitely watch 28 years later. Are you kidding me? Yeah, all right, I will. Keep yeah. your energy for that, okay? Yeah, done, done. If I can only have one movie that, that follows a weird uh, <laughs> cyclical path like that, yeah, great. Just say. Because wait, when did that movie come out? 2002 to Two. 2004 yeah so like we're not far off shot on a potato so whenever we were shooting digital with potatoes yeah, so like early digital yeah early yeah. yeah yeah keep your energy for I mean, steven awesome. soderbergh steven soderbergh still shoots on potatoes no yeah. but he shoots on iphones which at least look better than like 480p 420p whatever <laughs> which like 28 days later is a great film but we watched it recently you can only get it on dvd these days uh, and it's like, oh, this was like the maximum is 420p, and you cannot get it any better than that because that's what we shot with. Any uh, final wi- thoughts wildly, that you want to share? <laughs> wildly tangential. <coughs> yeah. So, any final thoughts that we've got on these movies? R- really glad I watched them. Martha, as you said, really glad I watched them in relatively close proximity. Um, it definitely wasn't a ba- like a night to night back to back, but like we did it within a month. Um, well, within a couple weeks, I did them. Yeah, I was gonna say I did them within a week. <laughs> yeah, I was noticing your letterbox like a week ago. You're like before sunrise. I'm like, ooh, you're speed running it. <laughs> uh, Look, I've been very busy watching Disney movies. That's a great. That's a great reason to be busy. Do you not know about Martha's? No, yeah, I okay. know. All right. Um, whereas I've determined that uh, September is September, and it's time to watch a bunch of Michael Mann movies. Um, <laughs> also valid. Yeah. Uh, but I guess my, my final thought is it's very delightful that Julie Delpy's parents played characters at the end of Before Sunset. Um, 
her dad is grilling out in the courtyard and her mom is like a woman walking down the stairs as they're heading up to her apartment. And that's just kind of cute. Uh, cute! Yeah. Um, beyond that, I don't know, really have any final thoughts other than these movies are great. I love spending time with these guys. <laughs> and, I, and also, like, I love, I love Richard Linklater. He's doing such specific things. Keep giving him money to do whatever the heck he wants. Even if it's bad, it's interesting. And no one else does, like, dorm room philosophizing dialogue like he does. It's so unique while also being very universal. Uh, again, please see, I see too much of myself in Jesse for the philosophizing part, but not in the Jesse's actually very in touch with his emotions in a way, which I am, uh, let's say, less so. <laughs> Emotional intelligence is my well, best just, just promise me you won't gaslight your, your wife the same way that Jesse did. In yeah, some of these movies. The, the problem is that in many ways, in that third one, I'm like, I don't see much gaslighting happening here at all. So Martin just gave me a look. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, Martha. I'm... I would not let him do that. Yeah, yeah. We had we had good conversations slash arguments after all three of these movies. We did. Our arguments did. mostly after the third because we disagreed about the the direction. Yeah. Um, well, and I think we're both very good at the like agree to disagree. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I'm going to bring it full circle and end where I began. Jesse and Celine are exhausting. <laughs> they this, are. If I, if I ever... I am... I, if I ever needed to explain Gen X mentality to anyone, I would show them before sunrise and be like, here, here it is. Also, I've never wanted to smoke a oh, cigarette more oh, than watching these movies. Oh my god, it was a struggle, Peter. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Oh like, ooh, what if we were Vienna in a cafe just chain smoking cigarettes? Mm, sounds good. I do. I, I was not a smoker for a very long. Um, and I don't miss it really, but every watching these movies, it was like, oh, that'd be nice. I was only ever a social smoker, and every summer I'm like, one or two that's like a good like we're hanging outside and like one or two friends might enable me great uh, <laughs> he's a yeah not uh, naming names but he and a certain friend <laughs> we have a long running joke that like if you see other people smoking one of them runs to the corner store for american spirits and then inevitably like throws out you know three quarters of a pack because they've gone stale but, <laughs> but yeah these these movies see, especially I... i'm just like mm, looks good that was how I ration- that was how I rationalized it to myself. I never bought my own cigarettes. There you mm, go. There you go. See, I on the other hand am the world's biggest pyrophobe. So You're so afraid of fire you won't like candles. Oh so <laughs> me smoking was never gonna happen. I've smoked a cigar maybe twice in my life when somebody else lit it for me. Oh <laughs> Marin, that's like hard mode. Did, didn't like you smoke a cigar at Shakers? Yeah, were you with us? Oh no, we didn't. When it was we we smoked cigars when we were at Shakers for Austin's birthday. It was a different time we went to Shakers that we ended up. Smoking well, but also cigars. Martha, did you not smoke a cigar at Shakers? No, I don't think they did. Right? I don't know what Shakers is. Uh, it was the, the, haunted, the haunted the haunted cocktail. Absinthe, yeah, the absinthe bar we took you to. We did the ghost tour. Oh no, I didn't smoke a cigar. Huh, all right. Well, it's also a cigar bar, so. Yeah. Also, apparently the owner is uh, bad. Yeah, it's apparently terrible. But yeah, no, one well, of the two I, times was I, at that bar, but it was not when we were there with Martha. Yeah, I stopped smoking shortly before I got married. So, mm-hmm. yeah. 
Um, next time, we are going to be discussing a grab bag of Edgar Allan Poe in anticipation of Mike Flanagan's new Netflix show, The Fall of the House of Usher. Um, Heck yeah. We will drop we will drop the specific selections in the episode description here, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, in the meantime, you can find me on all social media at Magical Martha, um, including Blue Sky Twitter. Inst- well, I'm not really on Twitter anymore, so Blue Sky Instagram uh, and Letterbox. You can find me on Tumblr at the Libratrix, which is also my handle on tiktok um i write a newsletter which comes out whenever i feel like it which is tinyletter.com backslash magical martha i'm currently working my way through the entire disney traditionally animated feature film length canon so i'm not doing any of the compilation movies uh but i just put out my entry on the 60s the films of the 60s which is 101 dalmatians uh, the Sword in the Stone, and The Jungle Book. So this has been a very interesting journey, and I wow. hope that you'll come and check out all of my feelings on that. They only had three movies in the 60s, and it was those three? Yeah, interesting. Well, Disney really kind of had a dark night of the soul through the 60s, through the 90s. 80s. <laughs> the 90s. It is. No, early 90s, they figured early it out. Early 90s, yeah. yeah. It is. Oh, well, 80, uh, 89. 89. 89. I stand corrected. <laughs> Uh, this is Robin Hood erasure, and I won't stand for it. Okay. Listen, as um, someone who grew up on Robin on the Disney Robin Hood, uh, agreed. Okay, I just want you. Okay, when you get but there, yeah. I need you to watch the documentary Howard on Disney Plus about the making of Little Women. Of Little Women. Uh, Little Women. Um, ah, sorry, weird. <laughs> I was just talking about Little Women at work because we're showing the movie. Sorry, Little Women. Like, other one. I don't other think. Little. I don't think he did Little Women. <laughs> Little Mermaid? Little Mermaid. No, yeah. and my yeah, brain. <laughs> yeah, my brain fully skipped me when you said that. Um, but you know, they only put out three movies in the '60s because Sleeping Beauty came out in 1959 and almost bankrupted the oh, studio. Yeah, it was it, like broke them. And oh my god, does that movie still look beautiful? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was earlier. That's it's why it's a yeah. masterpiece. Yeah, it looks stunning. Well, they started development on it in like 1953. Yeah, right. And it's I, I so... think it came out because like didn't they redo the aspect ratio on the whole thing? So oh they my had to God. start from scratch, <laughs> at one, restart from scratch at one point. I yeah. So yes. So the 60s is also 101 Dalmatians is also the first time that you start to see them reusing. Um, animation like, cells. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, a, a serious shift in the style of animation because they had to right. do it cheaper. Yeah. Oh, um, I love the first 10 minutes think... of 101 Dalmatians. I think that's the best meat cute ever. And then it rapidly it's... goes up. And then there's too many Dalmatians. <laughs> yeah. Like, I love the it's opening like of that 22 minutes of story. Yeah, exactly. It's like 22 minutes of story wrapped in 80 minutes of screen exactly. time. <laughs> Yeah, the the opening of that um, movie is delightful and rapidly has diminishing returns. Uh, Pete, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O 3000, although that's slowly sunsetting because somebody gave me a link to Blue Sky. Uh, thank you, Martha. Uh, I'm at Blue Sky and Letterbox at P Romberg. Uh, that's P-R-H-O-M-B-E-R-G. Uh, Letterbox still the best uh, social media platform, but also Blue Sky... 
better than the bird one. Letterboxd. I guess it's not, it's no longer Vintage yep. Twitter. It's just X. What, what's even happening now? Um, uh, yeah, and I think that's all my socials. Lauren, where can people find you? Um, I guess I do still occasionally post on my Twitter, so people can follow me there at a underscore star underscore danced. I do also have a letterbox. I can't remember what my name on there is, though. It is Marin Hagman. Oh, very creative. It's just Marin Hagman. M-A-R-E-N-H-A-G-M-A-N. So... And you can follow the show on all the places at DYDYH Podcast. You can also check out Marin's and my sister's show, Love Ya, which releases on the same feed on alternating release days. Our next episode is going to be on the uh, Netflix original Red, White, and Royal Blue. I'm very excited. It's going to be a fun discussion, I think. As soon as I learned that that show existed, I put it on your production calendar because (laughs) I'm like, well, this is, they're talking about this one for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I already told y'all that we're doing Edgar Allan Poe next time and probably going to do a little bonus after the show actually drops. So be on the lookout for that. Um, otherwise that's going to do it for us. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy doing your homework. Class dismissed. Yes, I have been accused several times of trying to start a fight, and I really am not. Like, I'm just fascinated. I'm fascinated by what people pick because everyone's reasoning is so different, and I think that that's beautiful. I mean, this would, honestly, to me, this would be an easier question if you asked favorite film. Um, I would have a different answer depending on what day you asked me, but I wouldn't have such, like, you know, strum and drong around it just because I'm like, best is so, so different than favorite. Like... That's a loaded term. And I think it also, like, uh, you have to establish your definition of best. Whether whether that's... Well, and again, it seems like, Martha, you explicitly want everyone to establish their own definition, but, like, some definition has to be established. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. Like... Obviously, we all are establishing our own definitions, but I don't want to limit anybody by telling them, like, what is your what is your best movie by these criteria? Like. Best itself is so subjective that I think the criteria also has to be subjective. This is fun. Sight and sound. We've got The Matrix, There Will Be Blood and The Thing all in a row. Those are all great movies, and I would like put any of them at various points on my not, on my favorite. That would not list. be my that would not be my PTA on a on oh, a what, list. What would be your PTA? Phantom Boogie Thread. Mm, Phantom Thread. You, I've never. I've, you recently watched? I've Phantom never Thread? seen Boogie Nights. No, I watched it the year it was nominated for all the Oscars. Oh, okay. Someone I know recently re-watched, watched or rewatched Phantom Thread. Uh, it's beautiful yeah yeah it's Marin. <laughs> also a big it's a big part of why i got so mad about um licorice pizza because <laughs> that movie uh, is a fucking mess <laughs> it's not it's just very different uh
I, I will be right back. I'll take a quick break, and then we should get into okay. the episode because yeah. it might be three hours. Oh, God. I will I will not eat my own arm. I will start eating your arm. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I, hope you guys, I hope you guys didn't have a hard out. Uh, no, we haven't eaten yet, but that's okay. We'll just... Oh, neither neither have we. I'm making dinner after we're done. So. Uh, yeah, say, same unless it becomes a mulligan. We're ordering food because that's easier. Mm. Uh, so we'll see what we'll see what happens.